Intensely Inquisitive, the podcast that searches for answers to life's big and not-so-big questions from the people qualified to give them with your host, Orion Kelly. Hey, and thanks for taking the time to listen to Intensely Inquisitive. I'm Orion Kelly, and welcome to Season 2. Now, at the core of this podcast is a desire to understand things on a deeper level, to know more, and to ask why. My purpose is to empower you with knowledge, education, and growth opportunities through open, honest, and inquisitive conversations. Intensely inquisitive. In this episode, we explore the topic of education and ask the question, is our education system providing children with disabilities the same quality of education as their peers? My guest on this episode is Travis Saunders. Travis is an education consultant, autism advocate, public speaker, and host of the ABC podcast, The Parenting Spectrum. Travis, thanks for joining me. Yeah, it's great to be here. Now, before we dive in and explore educating children with disabilities, just for those listening, do you want to share us your connection to education and, and kids with disabilities so we know where you're at? Yeah, sure, Ryan. Uh, look, I uh, first graduated uh, from university 20 plus years ago, and I've got a career in education that spans that length of time in primary schools and secondary schools, and more recently in in private enterprise. And so I've taught children on the autism spectrum all over the world, in the United Kingdom, in New Zealand, Singapore, and Australia. And I've worked as a behaviour specialist through roles, including education department, behaviour advisor, acting assistant principal of behaviour and human resources, I've been, uh, I've done a number of welfare coordinator roles and new level coordinator roles, and also uh, worked as a careers counsellor. But I've also worked with children with disabilities in my own business for many, many years now, um, doing one-on-one support work uh, out in the community, but also within schools and working with their parents and also working with schools to create better outcomes for kids. Do you mind broadening out a bit on the education consultant role, I'm just interested. What kind of work do you do in in that role? Yeah, look, it's it's changed a lot, and it's changed a lot quite recently in terms of the last twelve months. So, if we look back over several years, it was uh, supporting uh, students one on one with within a classroom. So, working with their parents and also the classroom teacher to develop pl- plans to support individual children and accommodate individual children's needs within within a particular classroom. It was about supporting uh, staff uh, to become uh, better at their jobs and to to build on what they already know and their and their knowledge and to adequately support the child to achieve great high outcomes. Um, and also working, supporting parents one-on-one in terms of uh, providing advice uh, as to different strategies that they could use in terms of um, those daily interactions with uh, classroom teachers to strategies to managing conflict, to uh, supporting uh, uh, their child in terms of uh, uh, how to approach certain homework tasks. So it was really quite varied. And during that time, I started to work on some um, speaking roles. And that was going out and talking to parents, but also talking to educators about how best to support children on the autism spectrum 
to achieve success and to feel happy and feel connected and accommodated and included um, in in different environments. And so where it is now today is that I have a business where I am working with parents along with my 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 partner and it's called working working with parents and we actually run workshops that are all about improving the relationship between the person that's working with your child who has a disability and the parent and so we work with allied health professionals and educators and medical professionals and we help them understand how they can actually improve their relationship with the parent and what that means for better outcomes for that parent's child. And so in line with that, I also do keynote presentations on how we can actually all be a positive guide in an individual's life and what that means and what that looks like and what that feels like. And the end result is a child actually having better outcomes in life and in school and having greater work opportunities. And so that's that's called the yeah, positive guides. Now, just for the purpose of the conversation, let's get a baseline from you. So how do you kind of currently rate the education system's effectiveness in properly educating kids with disabilities? We're talking about Australia, obviously, but in other words, you know, the education system providing kids with disabilities the same quality of education as their peers. Where are we at? Yeah, 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 sure. I think in, in short is that uh, we've got a lot of work to do. In 2008, Amaze, the you know leading Victorian autism organisation, commissioned two research reports by uh, a couple of universities in Australia, and that research found that autistic students have the worst educational outcomes of any students with a disability, with almost 97% facing difficulties in their education. And so, if we look at those stats alone, uh, we have got a lot of work to do. And uh, and we have we've we've got a lot of work to do, and I think we're we're really really only in the kind of the start of this change, and it's an exciting time to be in because I think society started to realise that uh, hey we're gonna we're gonna pick it up here. We've really got to start to include individuals with a disability because they've got so much so much to offer the world. And from my personal experience, you know, as you know, I'm a, I'm an autistic adult. My education life has been kind of bizarre. You know, I, I finished high school, but then I went straight into into commercial radio. I find a lot of people like me, um, Aspies, are very creative. So when I say Aspies, for those wondering, it's just short for Asperger's syndrome, of quite creative people. So it was almost a given that the, the creative arts is kind of where I found my, my strengths. And then I decided a while back that I wanted to study at uni, and I realised that you can't, you know, how was I don't know, you know, those pesky unis won't just let some autistic guy who's only finished high school rock up and study law or something. That's not going to happen. So I ended up going to TAFE, and then I used TAFE to get into uni, and then I did a did a course in uni to get into another course. I ended up getting accepted into into law at Monash University, which people tell me was oh, quite extraordinary. Uh, and I'm fantastic. Yeah, I've, I'm still. Doing the the degree, I've been going since twenty fifteen, I think, and I've got only a handful of, of units left. But it's interesting because they have a disability support services department, and you know a guy called Thomas has provided and his team some fantastic assistance for me. Uh, but the difference, I think, is between the support staff team providing you assistance, which is purely for assessment stuff, 
but there's no real assistance with regards to the learning of it. So for example, I may be able to have different environments for an exam or different environments for assessments, but that's based on me knowing what I need to know to do the assessments and the exam. So I think there's, there's a there's a gap between the departments that really want to help people with disabilities and the lecturers and the tutors and the faculties potentially old-fashioned view of how things are taught and it's only in one way and you must generate notes in one way and this is how it's done and and I think I'm experiencing that firsthand because the assistants can only help you so much in the end if you don't know what you if you don't haven't learnt properly you're not going to do well in, in assessment so do you think teachers and other staff members are adequately trained and and knowledgeable enough to competently educate and manage kids with with disabilities well I think you that's a great question and I think you kind of nailed it you use the word manage and that's obviously what's trying to happen at the university in terms of we teach this curriculum and we assess this way rather than accommodate children and adults with disabilities. And, and you know what happens when we, when we manage kids? We don't allow for that, that creativity and those strengths-based educational principles to come, come through to a full extent. Um, but if we accommodate children and adults with disabilities, we provide so many more opportunities for that for creativity. And so I guess to answer your question, whether or not staff members are adequately trained and knowledgeable enough to help support children and adults with disability, I think the simple answer is no. And I say that because I've still got a lot to learn. And I say that because every new individual that I meet, whether or not they have a disability or not, I have to start with the question or this was what I call the star theory and that's start by kind of asking and if I start by asking I can actually learn more about that individual and how I can actually accommodate their needs to be able to be successful in whatever it is we're doing together or whatever it is that they are actually trying to achieve. And when we do that, that, that star, you know, and that's, you know, that we say, so we start by asking and then we try it and then we analyse it and then we reflect on it, we're actually starting to work together. And when we start to work together, we have better outcomes. And so are we doing enough in terms of training? I think we're getting better slowly. I think the National Disability Insurance Scheme is actually pushing that boat for us in terms of individuals are able, able, able to access a lot of those resources and a lot of that support outside of education. But I think there needs to be a lot more collaboration when it comes to uh, the goals that are occurring for an individual through the National Disability Insurance Scheme and, their, and what they want out of their life and what they want for their life and match that and mix it together with, it, with our education system. And until we do that, I think, we're just going around in circles. We're not working together. And so education needs to start to work with those goals that are occurring for an individual. And so when I look at uh, what's going on in schools, I think there are some fantastic people that are coming in to school environments in terms of training, in terms of giving strategies uh, to be able to support people with disabilities and and autistic people. But a lot of those are kind of like brushstroke strategies. They are those generalist strategies that, that aren't supporting, I guess, you, Orion, as that individual. 
they're using these brush stroke strategies that they go, oh, okay, this is what the research has said that works for children or adults with autism. Let's let's do this on our own. Now, that's not necessarily going to help you in any way at all because they haven't started by asking and they haven't evaluated what your strengths are and they haven't accommodated your needs because they've used strategies that uh, aren't in line with you. And until we start to do that, still until we start to create a culture and that expectation that is about the individual, very little is going to change. And I think you made you know, a great point about you know, different areas and there's a breakdown between departments. For example, I'm extremely grateful for the, for the existence of a disability support services department in a university. To me, that's, oh, that's, I mean, that's extraordinary. That's but I think from my point of view, you know, the frontline people, the frontline educators, I mean, you, you would know, or, you know, maybe, maybe you don't, but I know this is kind of where you started out. Let's say I wanted to do a degree in education at uni to become a teacher, right? Is there a unit or units specifically on teaching disabled kids or am I, that just, that just a bad joke? I mean, I would assume there would have to be, surely. Oh, look, obviously there are many universities running, uh, you know, many varied programs around the country, but it's certainly becoming something which is being highlighted in terms of course material today. It's certainly something that's starting to to begin, but it's only a beginning. Yeah. And uh, one unit of looking at uh, different types of disabilities and how to support children and adults with different types of disabilities is is only that. It's a beginning. It's a starting point. Um, we're all lifelong learners and that we only have to look back over the last five years of how much has changed in our understanding of disability and our understanding of, if we look at autism as a particular example, how much we now know we got wrong. And that's only over the last five years. Yeah. And that's because we're listening to autistic voices. And so as a university, unless you've got... Um, uh, people that are actually have a lived experience developing those core course materials or coming in as mentors or speakers, uh, we're just kind of regurgitating the same material that was yeah. that was outdated. Yeah, no, it, it makes total sense. And you know, before I kind of go to the next question, it just reminded me of something I saw a while back. This has no connection to my area or, or my school. I just I just saw it on social media that uh, someone who has an autistic child you know, relayed the story and the, the teacher talked about how, you know, students were running a, a, like a, I guess an awareness fundraising day for autism. And I, you know, I think one of the kids might have asked and the teacher said, what that means is we're raising money for people who can't control themselves. That's what a teacher yeah. said to a class in 2019. Yeah, it's it's horrendous. So we, we have to under, we have to acknowledge. Let's not get stuck in the social media vacuum of everything's amazing and and great or everything's bad. And we have to look at it, you know, holistically. But as just an example, there we, we really have a long way to go with regards to you know teachers and and teaching staff. And I think you know there needs once you're in the job, there needs to be really structured, compulsory. Uh, annual education on all these different types of things. No different to how medical healthcare professionals have to get an amount of credit points each year to maintain their license in, in training and learning, if you know what I mean. I don't see why it's any different. It's our kids' education at stake. It seems pretty pretty important to me. Yeah, yeah. Look, and it's and it's so important. And I'll, look, I was lucky enough uh, recently to be a keynote speaker and run a, a three workshops for the New South Wales Secondary Principals Council. Um, and uh, we made sure that we were able to get uh, accreditation 
of those those hours uh, for those teachers and those school leaders and those principals to use in terms of their ongoing training and development. And one of the courses that uh, we were running had a had a section in it which was about the use of language. And that example that you've just described there in terms of the, those words that that particular teacher had used were less than words, um, ableist, I guess you can you could say, making the individual feel less than. And uh, so one of those units that uh, we run is in terms of breaking down language and getting people to actually look at their own language and the change of language over time. And I talk about some of the language that I no longer use in terms of the way that I talk about disability and I talk about my own son who is proudly autistic. Now, my son, when he was first diagnosed, um, the words severe uh, were were mentioned in terms of um, that diagnosis. Now, that word really doesn't exist in terms of the DSM-5 in terms of a category. Look, he requires very substantial support. He has high needs. He requires 24-7 support. But once we start to label and use words that don't necessarily reflect an individual and what the individual needs, we limit that individual. And so my son can now ride a bicycle. And if I had labelled him as being severely autistic, I would have limited his own self-belief, his um, his ability to feel good about himself to then get on that bicycle and to, to get riding uh, with me as we go along the, the trails and, and the road. And so we can all change our language that we use. And so, so another example of a word that I no longer use is the word crazy. I, I can't stand it. And people use the word crazy so flippantly. And yet I feel that if we can start to use words that and think about our words and become more conscious of the words that we use, we can make individuals that, that have a disability that have heard that word as a slur against them in the past. If we stop using it, it's actually going to empower those individuals to feel better about themselves. And so there's there's some words that I no longer use. And so I get staff to look at their own language, break it down, talk about some of the words that they think that they shouldn't be using anymore. And um, believe it or not, they stop using them. And for those listening you know, they that might not know much about disabilities or autism, that's why I'm talking about it, because you know, so you can grab some stuff and learn, and I hope you are. So, you know, when, when Travis is talking about words that can be unhelpful, I, I can share a few from my own personal experience as well, being, being autistic. You know, why can't you just be normal? There's pro- that's 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 not really going to work. Well, well, probably because I'm autistic, and that's that's your answer. But there's other things to to factor in when you when you use words, and I think the best way of looking at it is people when they use words, they use words through a neurotypical brain in a neurotypical world. As an autistic mm, as mm. an autistic person, you have a neurodiversity, you have an autistic brain, but you don't live in an autistic world. You have an autistic brain living in a neurotypical world. So when people use words that are normal words to normal people in a normal world, if you could just stop for a second and think about that, just let that sit with you. I won't won't use anyone else. I'll just say me. Me, Orion, as an autistic person, I will never get to live in my world. The words you use that are normal in your world might not be normal in my world. 
I've, I've already got to live in your world. I've already got to adapt on a daily basis and regulate myself so I don't put you out. So you might as well think about the words you use. And that, I mean, again, that's just purely my own experience, Travis, but I think it's super important. Words are super important. They can, they can deflate, you know, or they can inspire. And, yeah. and that's what we, we need to do. You and I both have autistic sons. My son's starting primary school and it's a it's obviously a pretty scary time for my wife and I. I, I this is I don't know where where I start, so hopefully I'll just let, I'll just take you off the leash and let you go. I, I real I really want to hear your thoughts on mainstream schools for autistic kids, and I guess there's that kind of mainstream versus specialist school argument, and I guess too the, the other thing to talk about too with regards to mainstream schools is public. And private. So, I mean, I'm just really interested in in hearing your thoughts on this. And obviously, this is something that you you deal with, with you know your advocacy and consultant work. Can you can you tell us your thoughts on this type of argument that probably people and parents have on a daily basis? Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. I think my first thing when it comes to schooling, whether or not it's private school, public school, mainstream school, specialist school, is that I have a wish, and I and I wish that my son had the choice. And so I wish that choice was taken away from me as a parent. I wish I didn't I, I wish I didn't make the choice of the school that my son goes to. I wish everyone had the same opportunity to go to these inclusive schools that were really accommodating. And so when it comes to the whole debate over, you know, which schools are doing it better, it's going to be different experience for every single individual. And so if I was to say that uh, specialist schools need to exist, there would there would be those people that would say, no, they, they shouldn't. If I said that the mainstream school should exist, there would be those people that said, but yeah, my, my child wouldn't be catered in the current environment in Australia and that they need that specialist school. Now, my son goes to an autism-specific school and he goes there for a reason. He goes there for a reason because we tried and we looked really hard in our local environment to find him a mainstream school that was going to cater for his individual differences and his learning style and and his needs. And yet we couldn't find a school that was going to support him, to make him feel happy, safe, secure, loved, you know, included, accommodated, and ultimately to to learn. And so we chose an autism-specific school because that was the next best option at the time. Do I want him to go to a mainstream school? Absolutely. Do I want every school in Australia to be set up where staff are highly trained and highly skilled and, and are able to establish environments and they have a culture which has great attitudes, values and behaviours? You betcha. And so what I think is that when we talk about all these different types of schools, they all have strengths and weaknesses. But let's concentrate on the on what a good school does look like. And so a good school is one that has what I call great teachers. Now, when I talk about great teachers, they're teachers that establish goals for the child and they're actually incorporating and using some of those national disability insurance goals within the individual ed- education plan. And I'll give you an example. If you've got a child that's working on their fine motor and one of those fine motor targets or those goals that the child may have set for themselves is that they want to improve their handwriting. 
And if you've got every single classroom teacher using a, uh, a laptop and they're typing and they're not handwriting, all of a sudden we're not actually accommodating the needs. So we need to look at how we can actually utilise the goals of what the teacher wants to achieve in terms of curriculum, what's necessary for the child in terms of uh, curriculum and uh, behaviour and communication and, and, and socialisation within the school environment and match those with the child's individual needs as outlined in their, in their national disability insurance goals. And so when we look at great teachers, so we've got goals, we've also got roles. What are the role, what's the role of the teacher? What's the role of the student and what's the role of the parent to be able to achieve those goals? And then we look at empathy as the E on the great word is we need to share our stories. Teachers need to listen and hear our stories and take on board what's going on outside in our, in our family life. Some of us want to share it, some of us don't want to share it. But we at least need to ask the question, tell me about yourself. Tell me about, tell me about your life. I'd like to know more about you. And then there's a approach. And that approach is in terms of what are the strategies that we're utilising and looking at the language that's used and, the, and how words matter, as we've previously discussed. And then there's T, teamwork, trust, and a two-way street, and it's transparent. And if we can create great teachers, we're going to create great schools and great schools are ones in which we're accommodating our, our kids needs they're safe they're happy they're included it's a strength-based model because it develops the child's resilience and perseverance and i'm not saying don't look at the things that they can't do but we can teach children the things they can't do by teaching them through their interests and strengths to develop those splinter skills. And if we can develop a culture that changes attitudes and values, behaviours internally from all levels, and that's from the principal right down through to the cleaner and the conversations that the person on the front desk has as the child enters the school, that's what a great school is. And so great schools remove those barriers for success and they provide that choice and control and involve that student in every aspect of the curriculum and activities that are occurring. And then they create these positive memories. And just on, you know, when we look at planning, what I really want to see is a great handover period when it comes to development of individual education plans or negotiated education plans or or any plan that's involving bringing the student to reach new heights in their life, is that can we stop doing the individual education plans at week four, five or six? Can we start doing those individual education plans from day one? Can we have that handover period that allows the parents to meet and the child to meet with the teachers to develop that plan together so that the teachers can hit the ground running? Because unless we're developing a plan that is able to be flexible and that can change on the run, we're doing the child a disservice. And by planning four or five weeks down the track, which often happens within schools, there's this huge lag period of where the teachers haven't got the resources that they need to best support the children. And so if that's one thing I could change, I'd love it. I'd love to wipe that magic wand. Funding and resources are probably the number one not excuse, but the number one justification for where we are as a system and why we can't bring to life what you've just discussed. Do you think that's something that 
we can really ever overcome if if it is a government based model it seems like that will always be a, an endless or an ageless justification look funding models they, they they vary in every state and in every school system uh, right throughout Australia in terms of the way that they fund children with disabilities to be able to provide that that additional support that's needed. But all of those things that I previously mentioned, when we're talking about great teachers and accommodations and providing choice and control, is that none of that requires money. That just requires a change in mindset and a change in culture or building on the great work that schools are already doing. So it's opening up those conversations and I do a, an activity in one of the workshops that uh, I run with um, teachers is that I get them to uh, hold a marble in their hands and that marble is almost like a crystal ball. It's a, it's a representation of something positive that's actually occurred in the school with the child that they're working with and that child can have a disability or not have a disability. And so we set up this system of having marble jars around certain areas of the school. And so every one of those marbles represents a positive story of something that's occurred with a child, say, on the autism spectrum or a child with disability. And so every time the teacher has a positive relationship with a the parent, they put the marble in the jar. Every time the teacher has a positive interaction with a the student, they put the marble in the jar. And then what happens, the marble jar starts to fill. And then during a, a period of time in the school, it might be a, around a coffee during a, a recess break, or it might be in a more formulated approach during a staff meeting or a professional development day, staff start to share those positive experiences with each other. So rather than concentrating on that management a word that we, we discussed before, we're starting to talk about the words that are positive and they're accommodating. So we're starting to share positive approaches to strategies, positive relationships. And what that does, it starts to build a culture and, and that starts to change those attitudes and it starts to change the values and ultimately behaviours. And that doesn't cost them anything. That's free. And that's something that should be occurring in, in all schools um, and doesn't need money. But we do need money. And we do need money to support individuals and we do need that money to support uh, the training of individuals and the uh, extra or additional staff to support students uh, with higher or, or complex needs. And, and I don't mean to take away from that, but it's something that uh, uh, we, we fight against as parents to ensure that that money or that, those, those funding hours is being utilised to support our child and not spread across the half a dozen other kids that may have additional needs within the classroom because the school doesn't have the funding that they require. I mean, in other words, schools, they can create more supportive, inclusive environments that actually improve outcomes for kids with disabilities today, right now. And it just starts with the teachers. It just starts with the people on the ground. That that actually can happen right now without anyone else's intervention or help. Is that fair enough to say? Yeah, yeah, look, absolutely, absolutely. It starts with teachers, but it also, I think it actually, it starts with all of us. Um, and I'm part of that equation as a parent as well. And I've learned over the years, I've made many, many mistakes when it come, has, has come to, down to those interactions that I've had with teaching staff. 
warranted it or not, I now reflect on it and I go, <laughs> what was I doing? Why did I say that? Um, and, and that's because we all love our kids. But we all also got to realise that the majority of our teachers, they all also love our kids and that's why they're in it. They're in it because they actually care for children and they want to see them grow and they wanted to see them develop and have greater life life outcomes. And so we've just got to find a better way of working together. And I think when we break down that word great, you know, goals, roles, empathy, approach, you know, two-way street, teamwork, trust, um, and analyse that, that's a great starting point. Well, given that the funding model and the focus on early intervention, it's, it's an interesting thought I have. When I spoke with the CEO of the ICANN Network, Chris Varney, in a, in a previous episode, he he said he's really concerned about the secondary school system. So I wanted to get your thoughts. Do you think the, the current secondary school system is actually setting kids with disabilities up to fail due to, a, I guess, a, a, a hole in the market, a, a less or, or lesser you know, access to, to funding support? Look, I think there is so many stresses on teachers with regards to uh, what they need to do and what they need to have their head around on a daily basis in terms of, you know, testing and NAPLAN and writing of assessments and marking of assessments, having their head around um, curriculum and, and understanding different learning styles and then having time to have meetings. They seem to have to be able to do absolutely everything. Now, if you're a primary school teacher, you've got a smaller number of kids that you are having those interactions with on a daily basis. If you're a secondary school teacher, you could be effectively be teaching up to a few hundred or a couple hundred children every single week. Therefore, the amount of time that you have to have those interactions with, say, for example, parents is reduced. The amount of time that you have those interactions with the individual child is reduced. The amount of time that you have to produce those individual education plans is reduced. So it's a pretty tough gig when you kind of break it down and look at it like that. And so, but it's no excuse for not looking after after individuals' needs and accommodating their needs. And so one of the things I like to talk to teaching staff about is that we can all make a difference in somebody's life. Now, if we take, for example, Chris Varney, and you, and you mentioned Chris, and you know, Chris is such a great guy, and he's, he's, what he's done has just been so inspirational. He employs 44 people through the ICANN network. And, but he talks about a, a teacher in his life, and I think her name was Mrs. Horvath, and that was the almost the conduit, or the, the link between his mum, Chris's mum, and Chris and the school is that Chris's mum found somebody that was going to be able to nurture and look after and and support Chris and help support Chris's needs. And so when we're in a very large environment with so many students and we're teaching so many students, it's very difficult if you're a, for example, homeroom teacher. Now, you may have six or seven children with, with high needs or with disabilities, and the other homeroom teacher may only have one, for example. And so there's a bit of, you know, difficulty when it comes to equity distribution in, term, in terms of workload, in terms of that liaising with the parent and liaising with the students to be able to look after their welfare. So I like to say now is that, like Chris, is that we need to find the person that's the, that child's Mrs. Horvath within that uh, school environment. And so when we can do this in a really, really simple way, 
within a, a staff meeting or a professional development day at the start of the year is that, you know, we, 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 we talk about a child within the, with the schooling environment and we talk about their particular needs and then we ask the question, is there anyone in this school that has a really good relationship with this kid? Would you mind taking on the role of supporting that child in terms of liaising with the parent and helping construct the individual education plan and then liaising with the other staff so that we can all get on that same page? And so, therefore, we distribute that workload. Um, we're giving the child an opportunity um, to accept that person as their possible, maybe it's their mentor or their tutor or, or it's their their, their personal uh, initial contact, and if they accept that, then they have a greater opportunity for growth and development. And, and that, once again, that, that doesn't take money. That just creates a, a change in structure and a, and a rethink in the way that we actually do things. There seems to be a void between a, a mainstream school that caters for a particular child and a specialist school that caters for a particular child and that middle void of, of kids that I, they don't really know which way to go or, or can't get the kind of education that they need. And you've talked about autism schools. I'm just interested with autism schools, you know, do we need specialist autism schools catering for each level? I mean, and with, with regards to terminology these days, you know, ASD1, ASD2, ASD3, there can be, you know, uh, high care needs, low care needs. It, it, is a, it is a very broad difference and everyone on the spectrum is different. But I know we've talked about just the perfect situation, the ideal world, but it seems that void in the middle is quite concerning. Is that a way forward or should we just continue to do what you, you've talked about, which is just making the mainstream experience more inclusive? Look, uh, I think that uh, every child has the right to have the, exactly the same education as their neighbour. And so if you asked me 12 months ago whether or not I believed that my son should have just gone to a specialist school or just gone to a mainstream school, my answer would be very different to what it is today. I think he deserves an opportunity to go to a mainstream school that has a culture that's accommodating, safe, keeps him happy, keeps included, uses his strengths and interests, and values him as an integral member and creates curriculum around him that is the same as the other kids, but is accommodated for his own individual needs. But at the moment, that doesn't seem to exist for my son in my local area. And so that's going to be a very different experience to other children with disabilities and other parents with children with disabilities. And so I have a really good relationship now with my child's classroom teachers. My son feels really included within the autism specialist school. There is such a variety of kids there. It's amazing. The other day I went to a performance and there's a kid up the front playing a guitar and singing such amazing vocals. And then there are children that are actually learning by, by typing on the AAC device and then they're having an opportunity to have those words heard in an open forum amongst um, a large audience. Now, I've been to too many mainstream schools where I've seen children who are nonverbal have the opportunity to, ex to actually be included in such a caring environment. It's something that I dream of and I'm going to do everything I can in to support um, that to occur in Australian education systems. 
So do I believe that we should have specialist autism schools? They're needed now for my son, that I hope that tomorrow and the next year and the year after that we have a growth in development and understanding of disability and we build on the current cultures that exist in our mainstream schooling systems so that in the years to come, children like my son are going to be welcomed with open arms and not seen as a burden on the system. And I feel deep down that that's often the case, that staff go, we'd like to do it, but geez, it's going to be hard. And we can turn that around to something like, absolutely, let's let's work together and let's give your son amazing opportunities in life. And I think there's you know, a statistic that talks about autistic kids change school at least once. And I think what that statistic really says is that they're unfortunately it's hard for them to find their place you know their place to be educated and what I what I really feel strongly about given I'm autistic and also my son is I really feel strongly that people understand just like they feel their child has a right to go to school and get an education it's not like my son has lesser rights they're the same they're the same rights and I've I just passionately believe that you know, my son or any any child has has as much a right to an education as any other child in the same environment. And because in the end, it's not. I always like to use the analogy. It's not like once school finishes, my you know my autistic son goes back to the autistic world and the normal child goes back to the normal world. Like I, when school finishes, they all re-enter the same world. It's not like they're that's living. Right. In, we, they're not living yeah, in yeah, different worlds. That's we sh- right. When they get on, yeah, that's exactly right, Orion. It's like when they get on the school bus. My autistic son is on the school bus. He doesn't catch the bus, by the way. I'm just using this as an analogy, but he's on the same school bus as the neurotypical child. That's right. And so, when he is later in life, he's catching a bus to work. He's on that same bus as the neurotypical adult. And when he gets to the workplace, he's in the same workplace as that neurotypical adult, if he's been given these opportunities to be empowered and to be successful. And so how can the neurotypical adult now understand my son if he hasn't gone to the same school as him? And the neurotypical child isn't going to the specialist school. The neurotypical child's going to a mainstream school. And that's why my son needs to be in a mainstream school. Exactly. No, totally agree. Wholeheartedly agree. Okay. Well, before we go, I just wanted to pick your brain a bit with with autism, I know we've talked more broadly about just disabilities, but in this specific topic with the narrative, do you think we need to change the narrative and how autism is understood? And how do you think we can do that? Yeah, yeah, that's an absolutely fantastic question. I think if we can start to look at the way that children learn, and so if we break that down into those those areas, are you a visual learner, an auditory learner, a read writer, a kinesthetic learner? And then through the way they learn, look at what motivates them. So are they motivated intrinsically? Are they motivated extrinsically? Do they need reinforcers or are they motivated by what they love doing? And if they're motivated by what they love love doing, we identify what those strengths and interests and skill sets are. And then we start teaching them through the way that they learn. And so the example there is that if they're a kinesthetic learner, Let's get them out jumping on bike rides. If they're an auditory learner, maybe they they have an interest in in music, or maybe they like those like to listen to the instructions that the classroom teacher has provided them. If they're a visual learner, do they need to have 
those things shown up on the board in a different way. And so when we talk about changing the narrative and how autism is understood and how can we do that, if we can create an environment that actually looks after the executive functioning differences of individuals and the way that we take in information and the way that we organise and categorise that information, and then we can then start to use that through teaching by this child's strengths, we then to start to develop their resilience and their perseverance, and therefore they have greater opportunities for success. And they feel happy about themselves. And this all happens when we start building a new culture. And when we start to build a new narrative, what we're actually talking about there is our language and being aware of our, our bias and actually breaking it down and talking about that and what that looks like and what that, that feels like as individuals. And uh, it's a great thing to think that we're actually talking about how we can change the narrative and how we understand and how we can do that. Because I can certainly say that when my son was diagnosed more than eight, eight and a half years ago now, this wasn't a conversation that was even being asked. So what a wonderful thing. And for those who want to hear more about Travis's experience as a parent with an autistic son, as you may well know, he's got his own podcast, ABC podcast called The Parenting Spectrum. Go and check it out. And also, I insist, I almost command you right now to go and find our episode of me talking to Travis on My Friend Autism, okay? So the My Friend Autism podcast, Travis and I talked about parenting uh, autistic children and, and it was a great conversation. So please seek it out and listen to it. And again, it's just been such a fascinating and uh, it will take me days to digest conversation, Trav. I really <laughs> I, I really do appreciate it. Thank you so much. Oh, look, I've, I've loved chatting to you, Ryan, and I'm loving what you're doing as well. It's absolutely brilliant. And I'm loving that we're hearing so many more autistic voices that are sharing their stories and educating the world. So keep kicking goals. You're doing a fantastic job. My guest was Travis Saunders, education consultant, autism advocate, public speaker, and host of the ABC podcast, The Parenting Spectrum. Intensely Inquisitive. I'm Orion Kelly, and thank you so much for listening to this episode of Intensely Inquisitive. My hope is that it's empowered you in some way, be that through learning new things, inspiring you to learn more and take action, or simply sparked interesting, deeper conversations. I look forward to continuing this conversation with you, so feel free to like the Orion Kelly page on Facebook, or you can send me a message at my website, orionkelly.com.au. That's O-R-I-O-N-K-E-L-L-Y.com.au. And if there's a topic or question you'd like me to explore in an upcoming episode of Intensely Inquisitive, well, please send me a message on my website or post it on my Facebook page. Until next time, keep asking questions. Thanks for listening to Intensely Inquisitive with Orion Kelly. For more episodes and to stay up to date, like the Orion Kelly page on Facebook.